What goes up? Boy, Marie! Boy, Strictly American. Time now for Spinning My Dad's Vinyl. Here with all his skips, scratches, and pops is my dad, Frank Vaccarello. Thanks, sweetie. And thank you for tuning in to episode 166 of Spinning My Dad's Vinyl. My dad loved his big bands. And what bigger big band than the Glenn Miller Orchestra? On March 1st, Glenn Miller would have been 120 years old. So we're going to celebrate his birthday all month with his music and his musical style. My dad had a ton of Miller music, and while I've already featured him many times on this show, you'll be introduced to an even larger portion of it this month, including a return to the most distinctive album in his entire collection, which we'll feature in four weeks. So... Get ready to hear one of this band leader's compilation discs released 12 years after his disappearance to kick off an entire month of his music in volume 166. This is Glenn Miller. Thank you. 
It's the Glenn Miller Orchestra with the Johnson Rag. Written by Guy Hall and Henry Kleinkoff. Arranged by Bill Finnegan, a name you'll hear in that position quite a bit. Soloists on sax were Al Klink and Tex Beneke. Trumpet was Clyde Hurley and Glenn Miller on trombone. Okay, why this record for this episode? Well, my dad has all sorts of vinyl and shellac records with Glenn Miller music, or other orchestras performing his music. And the name of this album just popped out as being the perfect fit to kick this birthday celebration month off. But just wait until you hear what else is in store this month. Of all the swing-era band leaders, Glenn Miller had more hit records than anyone else in the jazz world. More than Benny Goodman, Artie Shaw, Count Basie, Jimmy Lunsford, and Harry James put together. In fact, Miller had 16 records that were number one on the charts and 69 that made it to the top 10. The Glenn Miller Big Band was so popular that to a large extent, its music served as the soundtrack for the years of World War II and for an entire generation. And yet its leader was not a virtuoso soloist, a major composer, or an outgoing personality, and his reign at the top of the swing world lasted just three and a half years. And just what was this style that brought him so much attention? By having a clarinetist doubling the melody an octave above the saxophonists, he had come up with a trademark sound for his orchestra, one that could be used no matter what the song or tempo. Now, I'll also be using some of the liner notes to introduce songs where I see fit, like this one. Side two of this album begins with a lovely arrangement by Jerry Gray of a well-known waltz, complete with Tex Beneke's tenor and one of Chummy McGregor's few recorded piano solos. McGregor was probably Glenn's closest friend, the band's oldest member in point of service, and extremely popular with everyone connected with the outfit. And while this state may get laughed at for many reasons, this song is exactly right as I live in this state.
beautiful Ohio. Written by Ballard McDonald and Mary Earle, whose real name is Robert King. It was arranged by Jerry Gray. You heard solos from Chummy McGregor on piano and Tex Beneke on tenor saxophone. Okay, let me tell you about my dad's vinyl I have chosen for this episode. Glenn Miller and his orchestra, this is Glenn Miller. On the RCA Victor label, number LPM1190. It's a vinyl LP compilation format, released in 1956. Its genre is jazz, and its style is swing big band. It was pressed by RCA Records Pressing Plant in Indianapolis. We'll hear six of the 12 songs on this record. Now, the liner notes are from George T. Simon, and I'll read just a few here. One of the country's leading dance band critics once said, Of all the leaders I've ever met, the one who knows most what he wants and who's best able to get what he wants from his men is Glenn Miller. There are several reasons for this. Glenn Miller was a forceful man. He was also a thoughtful and intelligent man. He planned his moves carefully, but once his mind was made up, nothing could deter him from making those moves which he had planned. His musicians were well-disciplined by Glenn himself, who, because of his extensive musical education and experience, was able to tell them clearly and concisely what he wanted them to do and also to make sure that they did as directed. The results were reflected in his clean, clear sectional and ensemble sounds. Being a jazz man at heart, however, he never interfered with his musicians' ad-lib solos, permitting sidemen like Tex Beneke and Billy May and Johnny Best and all the rest complete freedom whenever the arrangements called for them to go out on their own. This, then, is Glenn Miller, the man in his music, one of the really great leaders of one of the really great dance bands of this or any other age. Listen, and you will know why. Okay, let's see what prices this record is being sold at on Discogs.com. $14.99 for a high and a $0.33 cent low. That gives it a $3.67 average and a $2.55 median. It was last sold on Discogs on September 28, 2023 for $1.93 or $2.08 U.S. I found copies on eBay from $5 to $37.50, quite a range, and I couldn't find any on Amazon. Now, my dad's record is in poor condition. You can see a lot of wear and several marks on the surface. You can tell he played this a lot. This record was released while he was in college, which was soon after the movie The Glenn Miller Story came out, making him famous all over again. A couple of the tunes you will hear have nastier skips than you're used to on this show. I had to, In fact, I had to re-record and edit the final tune on this episode because I really wanted to play it. The entire record is hissing and popping right along, but I thought the selections were too good to pass up. The cover is in really poor condition. He's got his ever-present black electrical tape along the spine, but I'm surprised I don't see the tape keeping the badly torn top and bottom seams together. The mostly black cover has lots of white spots from the movement of the adjacent records over the years, not to mention this one. He has the word posted stamped on the back, although no green magic marker streak. He has 
two address labels on the front, the lower one being the house I was born in uh, shortly before we moved to the one on the outside. So I will value my dad's record as one of those I'll throw in a box for 10 bucks. Next, I know what the title means, but that's not what I'm saying. Adios, written by Eddie Woods and Enric Mataguera. It was arranged by Jerry Gray. On bass, you heard Doc Goldberg, and on muted trumpet, that was Mickey McMickle. Okay, we have talked about Glenn Miller's life in detail in past episodes. From his birth in Clorinda, Iowa, March 1st, 1904, to his disappearance over the English Channel during World War II on December 15th, 1944. But in those short 40 years, Miller not only made an impact on the music scene, but he had some pretty famous fans as well. I found this in his Wikipedia page in the section titled, Reaction from Musical Peers. Louis Armstrong thought enough of Miller to carry around his recordings, 
transferred to 7-inch tape reels when he went on tour. Armstrong liked musicians who prized melody, and his selections ranged from Glenn Miller to Jelly Roll Morton to Tchaikovsky. Jazz pianist George Shearing's quintet of the 1950s and 1960s was influenced by Miller, with Shearing's locked-hands style piano influenced by the voicing of Miller's saxophone section in the middle of the quintet's harmonies. Frank Sinatra and Mel Torme held the orchestra in high regard. Torme credited Miller with giving him helpful advice when he first started his singing and songwriting career in the 1940s. Torme met Miller in 1942, the meeting facilitated by Torme's father and Ben Pollock. Torme and Miller discussed That Old Black Magic, one of my favorite songs, which was just emerging as a new song by Johnny Mercer and Harold Arlen. Miller told Torme to pick up every song by Mercer and study it and to become a ferocious reader of anything he could find because all good lyric writers are great readers. In an interview with George T. Simon in 1948, Sinatra lamented the inferior quality of music he was recording in the late 40s in comparison with those great Glenn Miller things from eight years earlier. Frank Sinatra's recording sessions from the late 40s and early 50s use some Miller musicians. Trigger Alpert, a bassist from the Civilian Band, Zeke Zarki for the, for the Army Air Forces Orchestra, and Willie Schwartz, the lead clarinetist from the Civilian Band, backed up Sinatra on many recordings. It was a surprise that clarinetist Buddy DeFranco took on the job of leading the Glenn Miller Orchestra in the late 60s and early 70s. DeFranco was already a veteran of bands like Gene Krupa and Tommy Dorsey in the 40s. He was also a major exponent of modern jazz in the 50s. He never saw Miller as leading a swinging jazz band, but DeFranco is extremely fond of certain aspects of the Glenn Miller style. Quote, I found that when I opened with Moonlight Serenade, I could see men and women weeping as the music carried them back to years gone by, DeFranco says. The beauty of Glenn Miller's ballads caused people to dance together, unquote. And that is still one of the greatest thrills of my life, watching my parents dance to Glenn Miller orchestra music. And we'll be hearing from that DeFranco-led band later this month, but it won't be Glenn Miller music. And now, not exactly a jig, but you'll recognize its roots. It's one of the band's oldest arrangements by Miller and McGregor, featuring Chummy on Celesta and some very pretty Miller horn. This number used to be especially effective on theater dates. Thank you. 
It's Londonderry Air, or some of you may know it as Danny Boy, which is a traditional Irish melody. That was arranged by J.C. McGregor and Glenn Miller with Chummy McGregor on Celesta. Okay, time now for this episode's interesting side note, and it has to do with the critical reaction to Miller's music. In 2004, Miller Orchestra bassist Trigger Alpert explained the band's success. Quote, Miller had America's music pulse. He knew what would please his listeners, unquote. Although Miller was popular, many jazz critics had misgivings. They believed that the band's endless rehearsals, and according to critic Amy Lee in Metronome magazine, letter-perfect playing removed feeling from their performances. They also felt that Miller's brand of swing shifted popular music from the hot jazz of Benny Goodman and Count Basie to commercial novelty instrumentals and vocal numbers. After Miller died, the Miller estate maintained an unfriendly stance toward critics who derided the band during his lifetime. Miller was often criticized for being too commercial. His answer was, quote, I don't want a jazz band, unquote. Many modern jazz critics harbor similar antipathy. In 1997, on a website administered by Jazz Times magazine, Doug Ramsey considered him overrated. Quote, Miller discovered a popular formula from which he allowed little departure. A disproportionate ratio of nostalgia to substance keeps his music alive. Unquote. Jazz critics Gunther Schuller in 91 and Gary Giddens in 2004 have defended Miller from criticism. In an article written for the New Yorker magazine in 2004, Giddens said these critics erred in denigrating Miller's music and that the popular opinion of the time should hold greater sway. Quote, Miller exuded little warmth on or off the bandstand, but once the band struck up its theme, audiences were done for. Throats clutched, eyes softened. Can any other record match Moonlight Serenade for its ability to induce a Pavlovian slaver in so many for so long? Unquote. Schuler notes, quote, The Miller sound was nevertheless very special and able to penetrate our collective awareness that few other sounds have. Unquote. He compares it to Japanese gagoku and Hindu music. In its purity, Schuler and Giddens do not take completely uncritical approaches to Miller. Schuler says that Ray Eberly's, quote, lumpy, sexless, vocalizing, dragged down many and otherwise passable performance, unquote. But as Schuler also notes, how much further Miller's musical and financial ambitions might have carried him must forever remain conjectural. That it would have been significant, whatever forms it might have taken, is not unlikely, unquote. Okay, this next tune is arranged by Jerry Gray, showing off the band's magnificent ensemble execution, plus solos from Beneke, trumpeter Billy May, clarinetist Ernie Caceres, and bassist Trigger Alpert. It was written in 1853. Thank you. 
That was the Anvil Chorus, written by Giuseppe Verde. Yes, the 19th century opera composer. It was arranged by Jerry Gray. You heard solos from Tex Beneke on sax, Trigger Alpert on bass, Ernie Caceres on clarinet, and Billy May on trumpet. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. As you can see by the number of albums I have at my disposal of Glenn Miller, his orchestra after his death, and other band leaders performing music in his style, my dad was a big fan. In fact, I am also having flashbacks to the innumerable Miller tunes we had in rotation at my first radio job in Cleveland. So maybe this month of Miller will bring back some good memories for you as well. This last song is a typical Miller screaming flag waver, fast, loud and jumping, generating a maximum amount of musical excitement for the Miller fans. my slogan is skips scratches and pops there is 
Bugle Call Rag, written by Billy Myers, Elmer Schobel, and Jack Pettis. And there you have selections from the album I chose to kick off a month of celebrating a great band leader for what would have been his 120th birthday. So thanks for tuning into Volume 166. This is Glenn Miller, however you did. If you want more information about this show, head over to spinningmydadsvinyl.com. I'll be back next week with all my skips, scratches, and pops for Volume 167, Bobby's Miller Pearls. Until then, go with the flow, my friends. (laughs) 